0: Welcome to Plants and Humans, Who's Domesticating Whom? A conversation hosted by moderator J.P. Harpigny at a Bioneers conference
1: with Wade Davis and Michael Pollan. We hope you enjoy it. We join the conversation as it begins.
2: I actually met Michael in 1994 uh, when I was on a book tour for a book called Seeds of Change that I wrote about agricultural seed diversity and a company that I had at that time And Michael ended up writing some, he was in the process of developing an article at that time, which was published in the Sunday Times Magazine called The Seed Conspiracy. And it was really the first time that the mainstream press picked up on one of, what I believe is still one of the most important issues in the world today, which is plant diversity and particularly agricultural diversity. And Michael has a very unique ability to take some of the thorniest, gnarliest subjects that there are and really being able to bring them into the mainstream in a way that is extremely fair, extremely balanced, and incredibly insightful. I'm sure many of you saw the article that he also did for the Times on the um, New Leaf Potatoes, playing God in the garden, I think is what it was. And more recently, he did one, yeah, on golden rice and the uh, PR hype behind all of that. He would never call it that, but I will. And most recently, he was kind enough to send me the galleys for his new book, which I devoured in the bathtub, called The Botany of Desire, A Plant's Eye View of the World. And he was sitting on the fence wondering if he could really make coming out to Bioneers. And I told him he had a huge fan club, so thank you for affirming my truth telling here. But it's an absolutely magnificent book, also just beautifully written, completely elegant, takes the essential premise and asks, have we cultivated plants, or have these plants, in fact, been cultivating us? And so I think that's sort of what gave us the idea for this title of this workshop was plants and people. And both Wade and Michael have really looked at the world from a plant's eye view as well as a a human view, or they've tried to do that, anyway. And so um, anyway, that's all I want to say. But I really did want to make sure you knew to read that book. And um, we'll get on with the show here.
3: Thank you Thank you very much. It's really an honor to be welcomed into your community. I feel like a visitor from the mainstream after that introduction, but it's great to be here. It's also an honor to share this bill with uh, one of my heroes, Wade Davis. You know, I consider myself strictly an amateur ethnobotanist, a uh, student of our relationship with plants, and he's the, he's the real thing. I do, though, in writing about plants, have a much better name, though, for it, don't you think? Somebody told me they have an allergist named Pollen, Dr. Pollen. <laughs> and I've been collecting. They're, they're called career naturals, these names. And if anyone has a good one, if they'd pass it forward later, because I, I do have a collection. <laughs> um, the head of the Audubon Society, someone told me last night, is John Flicker. <laughs> and I know a limnologist, s- student of freshwater, named Frank Freshwater. So uh, anyway, there's some kind of karma that, that brings you to write about something like plants. I want to talk this afternoon about the forgotten power of plants in our lives. And I'm going to focus, uh, I come at the whole subject of plants in a very different way than Wade, in that I'm really looking at very ordinary, everyday plants, and I'm doing it in my backyard. I have, you know, I, I, don't, I, I travel as part of the research for this book, but um, it's, it's very much a book that takes place at home. In a lot of ways, so I'm, I'm interested in you know very ordinary plants: apples and tulips, cannabis, and potatoes. So, well, those weren't that ordinary. Okay, we'll get to that later. And they were in my backyard. I did I did grow the genetically modified potatoes um, strictly. For si- I know I, I broke my v- organic virginity for just one season and then kind of uh, repaired it. Um, but I'm not going to talk to any, about any specific case studies. I'm going to kind of lay out the premise of looking at the world from the plant's point of view. And we're going to try to leave a lot of time for questions. And if you want to ask specific questions either about potatoes and genetic engineering or marijuana or whatever, tulips, you know, feel free. Um, and so I hope we have plenty of time for that. I want to try to open up this perspective for you about... The the power that accrues to us when we can start to see things from the perspective of other species, and plants in particular, I think that's a key imaginative act toward reconceiving our relationship to the rest of the world and overcoming this very parochial perspective we have on ourselves as the only subject in nature. And to paraphrase something Nina said this morning, uh, moving toward a more vivid experience of the other. I did it in my garden with these plants. There are obviously other ways to do it. But that's what I'm trying to do. So I want to start by reading a little passage from the chapter on marijuana that is, marijuana in my book is the more obvious case for the power of plants, even though I think it applies just as much to potatoes and other things. And it starts in the garden, which is where all my work begins, in the garden in my house in Cornwall, Connecticut. I sometimes think, everyone can hear me in the back? I sometimes think we've allowed our gardens to be boulderized that the full range of their powers and possibilities has been sacrificed to a cult of plant prettiness that obscures more dubious truths about nature, our own included. It hasn't always been this way, and we may someday come to regard the contemporary garden of vegetables and flowers as a place almost Victorian in its repressions. For most of their history, after all, gardens have been more concerned with the power of plants than with their beauty, with the power that is to change us in various ways for good and for ill. In ancient times, people all over the world grew or gathered sacred plants and fungi with the power to inspire visions or conduct them on journeys to other worlds. Some of these people, who are sometimes called shamans, returned with a kind of spiritual knowledge that underwrites whole religions. The medieval apothecary garden cared little for aesthetics, focusing instead on species that healed and intoxicated and occasionally poisoned. Witches and sorcerers cultivated plants with the power to cast spells in our vocabulary, psychoactive plants. Their potion recipes call for such things as datura, opium poppies, belladonna, hashish, fly agaric mushrooms, and the skin of toads, which can contain DMT, a powerful hallucinogen. These ingredients would be combined in a hemp seed oil based flying ointment that the witches would then administer vaginally using a special dildo. This was the broomstick by which witches were said to travel. It's my single favorite fact in all the research for this book. (laughs) Isn't that a great fact? The medieval garden of witches and alchemists were forcibly uprooted and forgotten, or at least euphemized beyond recognition. But even the comparatively benign ornamental gardens that came after them went out of their way to honor the darker, more mysterious face of nature. The Gothic gardens of England and Italy, for example, always made room for intimations of mortality by including a dead tree, say, or a melancholy grotto and the occasional frisson of horror. These gardens were interested in changing people's consciousness, too, though more in the way that a horror movie does than a drug. It's only been in modern times after industrial civilization concluded, rather prematurely, that nature's powers were no longer any match for its own that our gardens became benign, sunny, and environmentally correct places from which the old horticultural dangers and temptations were expelled. Or if not expelled, almost willfully forgotten. For even in grandmother's garden, today you're apt to find datura and morning glories, the seeds of which some Indians use as a sacramental hallucinogen, and opium poppies. Right there the makings of a witch's flying ointment or apothecary's tonic. The knowledge that once attended these plants, however, has all but vanished. And it's a little bit of that knowledge I want to try to 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 recover. Um, As I said, that passage does come from a chapter on cannabis but I want to speak more generally about the power of plants, which is really the 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 real subject of this book. Um, Cannabis is a stark case of that power. It's a a, a plant whose evolution has led to increases in its potency um, such that it produces a molecule that changes the content of our minds But the power of a plant like the tulip or the potato or the apple is really no less extraordinary. And that power to affect us, to gratify our desires, is the product of a coevolutionary process that I want to try to describe. And then we can discuss, if you like, whatever specific plants interest you. Consider for a moment why plants have these powers, why they evolved to produce molecules and colors and shapes that we regard as beautiful, that nourish us and poison us, that rouse us and put us to sleep, that calm our nerves or make us jittery, help us work, that even change the contents of our minds. And exactly how to a- approach this subject came to me in my garden. I mean, the book really does begin there. And it, and it all flows out of a, a little encounter I described in the introduction, uh, an encounter with a bumblebee. Uh, it was early in May, and I was planting potatoes, I think it was. And right next to me was a small apple tree, heirloom apple tree, and that was in extravagant bloom, and it was just vibrating with the attention of the bees. And I asked myself, you know, one of the great things, are there a lot of gardeners in the room? People garden? Well, you know, one of the great satisfactions of gardening is that it doesn't occupy your entire mental field. There's plenty of room for speculation and reflection and idle thoughts and daydreams. Unlike carpentry, which I've I've also done, but can, you know, you do the same thing in carpentry and you lose a finger. (laughs) Never happens when you're planting seeds. And I asked myself this kind of silly question, which was, how is my role in this garden similar or different than that bee's? And as I considered it, I realized there was, we, we actually had quite a bit in common, more than most people. I think, appreciate. We were both unwittingly disseminating the genes of one species and not another. The bee, to the extent he thinks, or she thinks, um, probably thinks that this garden is a banquet laid out for his, I'm going to use the masculine pronoun, there's some debate over whether bumblebees are masculine, the ones who do the pollinating are masculine or feminine. Um, Probably thinks that He's getting the best of that flower, you know, breaking in, getting the nectar, running off, and probably also thinks he's made the decision. I'm going for the apple. Thinks that he is the subject in this relationship and the flower is the object. But we know that that is a failure of bee imagination. <laughs> we know that what's really going on is that that apple tree. And that flower has cleverly manipulated the bee into doing things for the plant that the plant cannot do for itself, namely move its genes around the garden and around the world. This, of course, is your classic example of coevolution you learn in school, two species coming together to pursue their individual self-interests who wind up trading favors uh, in this particular case. So how are matters any different between me and the potatoes I was planting? Well, they aren't leaving aside the consciousness, which really isn't that important in this context. I, too, had been seduced by a picture in a seed catalog to plant that kind of potato. The potatoes, too, had evolved to gratify my desires for a certain flavor, a certain shape, a certain color. And this was their strategy to make more copies of themselves, to get their genes, in this case, from a potato farm in uh, the Northwest to Cornwall, Connecticut. So my premise is that... Plants, at least since the birth of agriculture, but actually going back before that, have had a similar co-evolutionary relationship with us. They have evolved to gratify our desires. That's their evolutionary strategy. And they've done this in order to get us to work for them, to move their genes around the world, to clear vast forests so edible grasses, some of the big winners in agriculture, could overspread the earth, to get us even to write books about them. So in a sense, the plants made me do it. In the same sense, the plants get the bees to pay them a visit. Now, why do plants go to all this trouble? If you know anything about evolution, it takes a lot of metabolic energy to produce a molecule like um, uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, THC. Um, The reason that plants have come to produce this astonishing array of molecules, that they've become really nature's alchemists, is you have to understand the one simple basic fact of plant life, which is immobility. Or really, inability to locomote. Because they move, obviously, on the wind and the air and vines move and that kind of stuff. But they cannot pick themselves up the way we can and walk around. So what they've done is use chemicals, by and large, instead of feet. Molecules that will either attract or repel other species, usually for defense or as an aid in reproduction. But it wasn't always this way, and we're going to take a quick uh, uh, tour through, through the last hundred million years, just to remind you that this is, that this was, it didn't start this way. Plants learned how to do this. Um, you go back hundred million years ago or hundred fifty million years ago and the world looked very different. There were no flowers to speak of. There were no big flowers and no fruits, no nuts. There was, uh, this is before the rise of what are called the angiosperms. Those are the plants that make large flowers, and uh, showy flowers, and, and s- nuts and f- seeds. Um, before that, the world, there was sex in the plant world, and there were certain tiny flowers. But basically, it was a greener, leafier world. Um, so much so, in fact, that it didn't support a lot of warm-blooded creatures. It was a world where the reptiles did quite well, and we're talking about the age of the dinosaurs. And if you think about it, if you've ever been to one of those natural history museums, I'm thinking of the Peabody at Yale where it has one of those great murals of the dinosaur world. You'll see it's very green, and you've got ferns and, 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 and um but there are very few flowering plants. The one you'll see toward the end of that diorama is a magnolia, which is one of the earliest of the angiosperms, and it's an interesting plant to look at in this connection because if you look at a magnolia now, when I look at a magnolia, you know, it's kind of big and sort of crude and it's really sort of God's first draft of what a flower could be. And and, and from that magnolia, um, an infinite range of refinements have been worked out. Anyway, um, Darwin called this rise of the angiosperms, he called it the abominable mystery. And I think what he meant by that is, one, it didn't have to happen. Evolution was happening. Plants were reproducing. They were doing a lot more cloning. Um, and they were depending on a lot more haphazard pollination. Drop a, you know, Spread some, some pollen on the wind, and hopefully it'll reach another pine tree or something like that and, and pollinate it. It was not as efficient a system. Uh, there was, as I say, a lot more cloning. So evolution proceeded more slowly. Life in general was more local. Uh, there was not quite as much variation. Um, And then this new idea, this whole new way of doing business in nature comes, the rise of the angiosperms. And the other aspect of the mystery was in the fossil record apparently, angiosperms spread so rapidly by evolutionary standards across the world that it clearly was a very good way of doing business in nature. Um, Basically it involved coevolution. It involved enlisting other creatures um, to help you reproduce, either by uh, enlisting the help of pollinators or animals. Red fruit to attract mammals. Get them to carry your seed somewhere else. Um, And um, so this goes on for 100 million years. We're going to jump right ahead to about 10,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago. Uh, There's some debate over exactly when. When a particular group of angiosperms hit on what is in some ways an even more clever strategy. And that was to put to work a particular animal with a very large brain, a tool-making capability, and a propensity to do a lot of wandering around the world. And that, of course, is us. And that event, that new way of doing business in nature, is called we call the invention of agriculture. Now, that's a phrase that seems a little bit conceited to me and a little bit self-centered. If the plants were naming it, they would call it something like, the domestication of humans. <laughs> because think, we changed easily as much as they did in this in this new deal. We settled down. We gave up our life as nomads that Wade was talking about this morning, uh, a life that had many advantages um, and was very healthy in many ways and required a lot less work than agriculture, had less disease uh, than agriculture. So, We gave up a lot, and we don't know exactly why we did. Um, But we settled down. We became farmers. We cleared the world of its trees, by and large, to make these plants very happy. Because a lot of these plants compete with trees for sunlight. Um, The grasses, as I said, were great beneficiaries. And what happened with the grasses, I mean, in my view, it makes just as much sense. to to regard the invention of agriculture as a strategy hit upon by the grasses to conquer the trees. (laughs) They got us to chop down the trees. And I realize now when I mow my lawn, that's also going on there. You know, in my first book I wrote about lawns as as, as, uh, nature under culture's boot and this total domination, you know, we, we, we cut these plants to within an inch of their lives and we don't let them seed and we don't let them flower and we don't, you know, we don't, they don't die, they just, it's totally artificial. But when I started working on this book, I realized, well, it's a little more complicated than that. All that is true enough, but what do these grasses in my lawn need more than anything else? They need me to keep the forest from coming back. And in Connecticut, that's what the forest is bent on doing. If I stopped mowing, there would be shrubs in a succession, and very soon you'd have second-growth forest. So, by getting me to mow the lawn, I'm keeping the forest at bay on behalf of the uh, the grasses. Now, this point of view, which may not sit well with you and may sound kind of wanky, I, I, I want to, I just want to suggest that there's nothing I'm saying that is not in Darwin, really. I mean, we. We tend to see the world in terms, this is embedded in our grammar, in terms of subjects and objects. I mow the lawn, I pull the weeds, we domesticate the crops. Um, But, you know, and this is a very Cartesian way of looking at things. Even though we had this Darwinian revolution 150 years ago, and he taught us that all species are acting on one another, that there are no subjects and objects in nature, that for every subject there's an object, and for every object there's a subject, and, and that um, nobody's on top. Um, we understand this intellectually, but I don't think we believe it in our bones. We're still Cartesians when we look at the world, to judge by our are actions. I mean, and you look at something like genetic engineering, and and there is still in, in the whole machine metaphor that they've brought to plants this idea of the inertness of nature and the uh, the human subject acting on that, uh, taking parts from this machine and, and putting it in this machine and getting it to produce the same thing there. So I think that um, and what I'm really trying to do in this book is tell stories about plants that make us not just think like Darwinians, but feel like Darwinians. So that this idea, this wonderful idea of reciprocity uh, in nature is something that we begin to feel in our bones. Um, because I think that is the next step. I think that's where we have to go. So that's one advantage. That's, that many things come out of looking at the world from this plant's eye view. And I've given you kind of the more cartoon aspects of it when you think about domestication. And, but one, one example I want to offer before I talk a little bit more about plants' point of view is, it goes to this point of subject and object. You know, many, many plants, and Wade can talk to this, have refused to be domesticated. Domestication is not something you can simply choose to do. It's remarkable, actually, how few plants and animals have been domesticated successfully. They only do it when it's in their interest. They don't have to do it. Um, And the classic example that that, uh, I'd come across in doing my research was the oak tree. For thousands of years, people have been trying to domesticate the oak. If you've ever, as a kid, I'm sure you tried an acorn and you know they're indescribably bitter. And a lot of domestication really involves finding a mutation for sweetness or non-bitterness in a plant that formerly was. The potato was very bitter and toxic. Uh, Squashes were very bitter. And along the way, one of the the variations proposed by a a species will be losing its bitterness. And that generally becomes the line of descent for the domesticated version. Well, people have been tasting oaks, acorns, for years and years and years, and they have yet to produce that sweet acorn. And if you find that sweet acorn, you'll make your fortune because it's a very nutritious food. Native Americans have used it, and there are other ways to remove the bitterness, but you cannot find a sweet acorn. And that's simply because the oak has a very good deal going with the squirrel. And we can't offer it any more. This is my theory. This is not science right now. I hate to add with a, with a scientist in the room. Um, but think about it. I mean, what does the squirrel do for the oak? Takes its acorns, moves them quite far afield, and buries them, plants them, right? and then promptly forgets where it leaves. <laughs> According to, this is Beatrix Potter's estimate, okay, not a scientist, 25% of the acorns that are squirrel berries are forgotten and allowed to grow into oak trees. So, you know, we can't, we can't match that. Without cannabis. Excuse me? Without cannabis? Without cannabis, <laughs> the number goes up with cannabis. Yes, it's, it's 40, 50%, I think, with cannabis. Um, I don't know that's, that uh, squirrels are um, susceptible, but so the point is the plants don't have to do this. Elk is, uh, have been very hard to domesticate. Uh, in the case of animals, you need a certain kind of uh, hierarchy or kinship structure for us to inject ourselves into the herd uh, and, and begin to domesticate, and many animals just won't play. so. I hate to, you know, we have this terrible vocabulary to talk about the subjectivity of other species. And I'm talking about cleverness and strategies. And I hope you realize I'm not thinking that the plants are sitting around making up these strategies, Okay, It's trial and error. It's what works. Um, You know, the first apple that was red, it was probably a mutation. And uh, it turned out to get that apple's fruit noticed by mammals um, and out of the forests of Kazakhstan or wherever it was. These these evolutionary strategies we use the word strategy, but that implies intent and this this process does not need intent to work obviously Um, So I'm not someone who believes in the consciousness of plants Um, I have I I don't have any evidence of it. Um, I do believe in their genius Um, and you know and One of the things that comes out of looking at the world from the plants point of view I just want to list a couple of those things and then um, move on to 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 wait and then some questions, but um, when you look at the world from the plant's point of view, you see us in a new light. And finally, I'm as interested in homo sapiens as I am in tulipa or cannabis or all the other plants I write about. I use the plants as a mirror in which to see ourselves. And that's because these plants are brilliant students of our desires. They have gotten ahead by figuring out what we desire. So that by looking at tulips, you can understand something about beauty. And why is it? This is an amazing thing. Why, why do we seem to be hardwired to find flowers beautiful? You know, many other things we think of as beautiful, like mountains. We had to learn. We didn't think mountains were beautiful until the romantics came along. Beauty is very often in the eyes of the beholder, but not flowers. Flowers are different. So what's that about? Um, in the case of uh, cannabis, the desire I, I, I'm very interested in exploring is why is it that So many cultures, in fact, according to Andrew Weil, I think all but the Inuit, and you could speak to this too, have had a plant that they've used to change consciousness. And the reason the Inuit didn't is that none of them grew there. So this appears to be a universal desire. And what can the study of cannabis and the the chemistry of cannabis tell us about that? And the other thing that comes out of looking at the world from the plant's point of view is obviously deepens your respect for their genius. And there there are countless examples. You know, we we, we think we're more advanced than other plants, than other species. But it really depends on what advances you value. The plants have been evolving longer than we have. They're just going in a different direction. They're working on different projects. They're dealing with this locomotion problem. And to do that, while we were nailing down consciousness and tool making and language, they were perfecting, inventing, organic chemistry at which they excel beyond our most brilliant chemists. Photosynthesis is a trick we have not mastered, this amazing trick of converting sunlight and air and water and a few common minerals into energy, into sugar. Um, Our idea of solar power is crude by comparison. Uh, One example I'll cite, there's so many, but the lima bean, I was just reading about this on the plane out, um, has come up with this brilliant, chemical defense. When when a lima bean plant is attacked by a spider mite, you know what it does? It releases a volatile chemical from its leaves that goes out in the air and summons an insect that dines exclusively on spider mites. Okay? It calls for help chemically. So um, I'm not prepared to say we're more advanced. I think, you know, we judge advances by what we got good at. If the plants were writing the book, it would have a lot more attention to organic chemistry and uh and they would look a lot better um so they've been they've just been evolving in another direction um and thc i mean it's another an amazing invention of plants it wasn't it probably was not invented to get people high the plant had its own purposes um for doing this but once humans discovered what it did to them the plants coevolution took it down that path until it was some stronger and stronger and stronger. On that path, on another path, it became a longer and stronger fiber. I mean, uh, cannabis goes down these two paths, both human-directed. Um, and uh, so the whole, the whole issue of drugs, which I don't really have time to get into, but there. are um, These are the most astonishing chemicals in many ways that the plants have come up with. And and think of the implications that a plant out in the world can manufacture a chemical that changes what goes on in here. I mean, we have these very simple notions of mind and body, matter and spirit, but this this throws all those up in the air. Um, and and, And this fact that plants can do this to our brains, have done it, has had an enormous effect on us, has changed us. I truly believe you could write a natural history of the imagination just in the West and show how at various crucial junctures the use of drugs has changed culture by, by creating a new mental construct in the mind of, of uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, right? His notion of the imagination owes to his use of opium. Um, and that notion of the transformative imagination, his secondary imagination, all modern art comes out of that. Jazz comes out of that. Um, modern painting comes out of that. This idea of you take the inert, uh, the, 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 this, what he calls the kind of dead inert bits of story or image and break them up and put them together in new ways. Um, I believe that I, I, the way I treat drugs in this book is that they're, in the cultural realm, they're mutagens. And they act in culture sort of the way UV radiation might work on genes, on memes. Which we've heard a little bit of talk today, drugs can do the same thing. They can scramble things. I mean, 99 out of 100 times, you know, these mutations, like all mutations, are disasters. Um, Do no good. (laughs) I don't want you to get the wrong idea. But there are those times, and we may find someday that Plato's metaphysics come out of his experience with drugs. All the classical Greeks used an hallucinogen. We're told once a year, Um, and so that you know, there's a lot in our culture religion. So I do believe we could write a natural history of the imagination. And that suggests a whole new connection between nature and culture than we've thought about so far and goes a long way toward bridging the Gulf. Nietzsche called Dionysian intoxication nature overpowering mind, nature having her way with us. and That's a powerful and perilous idea in the West especially and I argue it really it's what's going on in the Garden of Eden. Um, So, I'm going to read you a brief passage about the Garden of Eden and the last page or two of this chapter, and leave you with those thoughts, and then introduce Wade, and then we can talk among ourselves. What then was the knowledge that God wanted to keep from Adam and Eve in the Garden? Theologians will debate this question without end, but it seems to me the most important answer is hidden in plain sight. The content of the knowledge Adam and Eve could gain by tasting of the fruit, which by the way was not an apple. Um, uh, The the brilliance of the apple was to insinuate itself into the biblical story. (laughs) But it did did this, it did this not through the writers of the Bible, but through the northern Renaissance painters, Durer and Cranach, who needed to specify the tree in the garden. That's right. Apple trees could not, there were not apple trees in the Middle East, where we think the Garden of Eden was. Um, It was probably a pomegranate. But nevertheless, part of the skill of the apple is we all think otherwise. (laughs) The content of the knowledge Adam and Eve could gain by tasting of the fruit does not matter nearly as much as its form. That is the very fact that there was spiritual knowledge of any kind to be had from a tree, from nature. The new faith sought to break the human bond with magic nature, to disenchant the world of plants and animals by directing our attention to a single god in the sky. Yet Jehovah couldn't very well pretend the tree of knowledge didn't exist, not when generations of plant-worshipping pagans knew better. So the pagan tree is allowed to grow even in Eden, though ringed around now with a strong taboo. Yes, there is spiritual knowledge in nature, the new god is acknowledging, and its temptations are fierce, but I am fiercer still. Yield to it, and you will be punished. So unfolds the drug war's first battle. <laughs> I'm just going to read you a little bit more. Can you, can you stand three more minutes of reading? OK. I've removed most of the temptations from my own garden. I tell the story of I grew marijuana many, many years ago uh, before the statute of limitations, um, and, before, and before the drug war got very serious. I've removed most of the temptations from my own garden, though not without regret or protest. Immersed this spring in research for this chapter, I was sorely tempted to plant one of the hybrid cannabis seeds I'd seen for sale in Amsterdam. I immediately thought better of it, however. So I planted lots of opium poppies instead." (laughs) Well, it's sort of legal. Um, You can find them in seed catalogs. And if you don't know that they're Papaver somniferum, you're not guilty of violating the Controlled Substances Act. So that is a guilty knowledge you now all have. And I'm sorry, you can never again grow Papa or without breaking the Controlled Substances Act. Unless you use marijuana and forget. Um, so there, there is a way to restore your innocence. I hasten to add I have no plans to do anything with my poppies except admire them. First their fleeting tissue paper blooms, then their swelling blue-green seed pods, fat with milky alkaloid. Unscored, and so at least arguably innocent, these poppies are my stand-ins for the cannabis I cannot plant. Whenever I look at their dreamy petals, I'll be reminded of the powers this garden has abjured in order to stay on the safe side of the law. So I make do with this boulderized garden, this densely planted plot of acceptable pleasures. Good things to eat, beautiful things to gaze upon, fenced around by heated laws. If Dionysus is represented in this garden, and he surely is, it's mainly in the flower border. I would be the last person to make light of the power of a fragrant rose to raise one's spirits, summon memories, even in some not merely metaphorical sense to intoxicate. The garden is a place of many sacraments, an arena at once common as any room and as special as a church, where we can go not just to witness but to enact in a ritual way our abiding ties to the natural world. Abiding, yet by now badly attenuated. For civilization seems bent on breaking or at least forgetting our connections to the earth. But in the garden, the old bonds are preserved, and not merely as symbols. So we eat from the vegetable patch, and if we're paying attention, we're recalled to our dependence on the sun and the rain and the everyday leaf by leaf alchemy we call photosynthesis. Likewise, the poultice of comfrey leaves that lifts lifts the wasp's sting from our skin returns us to a quasi-magic world of healing plants from which modern medicine would cast us out. Such sacraments are so benign that few of us have any trouble embracing them, even if they do sound a faintly pagan note. I'd guess that's because we're generally willing to be reminded that our bodies, at least, remain linked in such ways to the world of plants and animals, to nature's cycles. But what about our minds? Here we're not so sure anymore. To take a leaf or a flower and use it to change our experience of consciousness suggests a very different sort of sacrament, one at odds with our loftier notions of self, not to mention civilized society. But I'm inclined to think that such a sacrament may on occasion be worthwhile just the same, if only as a check on our hubris. Plants with the power to revise our thoughts and perceptions, to provoke metaphor and wonder, Challenge the cherished Judeo-Christian belief that our conscious thinking selves somehow stand apart from nature, have achieved a kind of transcendence. Just what happens to this flattering self-portrait if we discover that transcendence itself owes to molecules that throw f- that excuse me that flow through our brains and at the same time through the plants in the garden? If some of the brightest fruits of human culture are in fact rooted deeply in the black earth with the plants and the fungi. Is matter then still as mute as we've come to think? Does it mean that spirit too is part of nature? There may be no older idea in the world. Friedrich Nietzsche once described Dionysian intoxication as nature overpowering mind, nature having her way with us. The Greeks understood that this was not anything to be undertaken lightly or too often. Intoxication was a carefully circumscribed ritual for them, never a way to live, because they understood that Dionysus can make angels of us or animals. It all depends. Even so, letting nature have her way with us now and again seems like a useful thing to do, if only to bring our abstracted upward gaze back down to earth for a time. What a re-enchantment of the world that would be, to look around and see that the plants and the trees of knowledge grow in the garden still. Thank you very much.
1: I've uh, already had two opportunities to uh, talk to you, so I wanted to uh, just to add a few things informally to what Michael said, um, I love what you said about the um, the idea that drugs are kind of the catalysts of social uh, transformation and like most mutations they are disastrous. And it reminds me of a time when Terence McKenna and Jonathan Ott and Dennis McKenna, who may be well known to you, were in Hawaii and they are at a sort of one of their hallucinogens, gatherings, or whatever you want to call them. And Dennis recalled telling me um, that he'd sort of poked his head up from the foliage and looked around at all these psychonauts and said, if this shit is so good for you, why do we all look so weird? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, You know, I, um, I remember when I was first traveling in Columbia in South America with uh, Timothy Plowman, who is probably the best botanist of his generation, uh, the world's uh, authority on coca, and a, an incredible poet of nature. And you may remember that book, The Secret Life of Plants, that came out in the 1970s. It made a big deal about how you should sing to your plants and, you know, touch them and talk to them and everything. Tim hated that book. And he used to say, why would a plant give a shit about Mozart? And even if it did, why should that impress us? They can, they can eat light, isn't that enough? And and I'm, you know, I'm always, um, I, I think Michael raised some very interesting questions as to the nature of the relationship with the plant world, but also why are we so universally ignorant about a whole realm of life that is so vital to our own well-being and clearly to the fate of the earth. I remember up at our fishing lodge in northern British Columbia, we had a, a wonderful friend, a former ambassador to Jordan, Dick Vitz was his name, visiting us actually as a client, And uh, he's a very erudite, educated, European-based scholar, basically. And he was lamenting the demise of, of educational standards in America. And he went on and on in his kind of elegant way about how people graduated from college without knowing anything about history and their knowledge of French poetry was non-existent. And, of course, they knew absolutely nothing about the great Greek philosophers. And I interrupted him. I said... Dick, could you uh, please give me the formula of photosynthesis? And he just laughed his head off because he didn't have the foggiest idea what that formula was. But if you think about it, I mean, if we're going to make kids recite prayers in school classrooms, it's that line of, of, uh, of chemistry, that piece of botanical verse, if you will, that should be at the top of their imaginations and the tip of their tongues, because that is the simple equation of carbon dioxide and water combining with photons of light to produce food and the very oxygen upon which we subsist, that is really the most important chemical formula ever to be developed in the history of evolution. And I I've thought a lot about my own personal background in studying plants because I began extremely late in life. Although I was raised in the bush in British Columbia and had a very close affinity for the natural world, uh, I never took a single biology course at all until my third year of university uh, at Harvard. And that was largely because biology in an academic sense to me was synonymous with white-frock laboratory technicians and rats that smelt of formaldehyde and had no relationship whatsoever to the natural world that I loved so much. And then, um, in my third year of university, I picked up on the presence at that campus of a legendary uh, figure, Richard Evan Schultes, who in a world of few heroes stood out and loomed large on that Harvard campus, a kindly professor who shot blowguns in class and kept outside his door a bucket of peyote buttons available as an optional laboratory experiment. <laughs> he was also notorious for his dexterous manner in which he got students off marijuana convictions. And this is actually apropos to what Michael is writing about. By legal statute, of course, cannabis sativa was illegal, but Schultes and a small minority of botanists maintained that there were, in fact, three psychoactive species of cannabis, including ruderalis and indica. And that left the burden of proof in a criminal prosecution, Uh, on the prosecutors to show beyond reasonable doubt that a ground-up bag of weed was in fact sativa as opposed to Ruderalis or Indica. And since even the botanists couldn't agree on how many species there were, it was by definition an impossible task. Now, none of the students actually cared about these arcane points of nomenclature or taxonomy, but they appreciated the marvelous ability of this fifth-generation Bostonian uh, breaking open the courtrooms and setting the children free for the sin of smoking an innocuous herb. In fact, at one point, he was testifying at a, a, a case in some place like, I don't know, Erie, Ohio or Cleveland, Ohio or something, and the judge turned to him and said, Isn't it true, Professor Schultes, that you simply come to these trials to increase your own personal prestige and so on? And uh, he turned to the judge and he said, Sir, do you think I, Richard Evan Schultes, he was so conservative, incidentally, that he would not use a Kennedy stamp. He didn't vote for the Republican Party. He voted for Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. He... When Jackie Anassis came to the museum to tour the exhibits, he disappeared uh, rather than have to guide her with the exhibits. Of course, this was still the man who had sparked the psychedelic era with his discovery of the magic mushrooms in Mexico in 1938. But he turned to the judge and he said, Sir, do you really believe that I, Richard Evan Schultes, a fifth-generation Bostonian, would come to Cleveland to increase my prestige? <laughs> but thanks to... I'm sure you all revere this man, that's why I can tell you these jokes about him. But, you know, because one of the marvelous things about Schultes was that he was a dream weaver, And anyone who crossed the threshold of his office was welcome, and often projected to places beyond their imaginings. I actually, as an undergraduate student once, when I knew him well, pounded on his door, pushed my way in, and found myself stunned to see the president of Harvard having a meeting with the director of the museum, Schultes, and I backed toward the door spewing apologies, and this great man literally turned to President Derek Bach and said, Mr. President, would you mind please stepping outside? I have an undergraduate student to see me. And it wasn't me, it was the way he treated all students. And when I first went to him and said I saved up some money in a logging camp and I want to go to South America like you did and collect plants, he simply looked across the room at me and said, well son, when do you want to go? And two weeks later I was in the Amazon, at, where I would stay for 15 months. And as I slowly, um, and having hooked up with Timothy Plowman, began to have that experience of the botanical realm, uh, mentored by one of the greatest botanists of our age, not just Richard Evan Schultes, but his great protege, Timothy, uh, it, w- it was a real revelation for me. I remember that if, before I studied botany, in the field, a forest was just a kind of a monotone of green. I mean, interesting in an ascetic way in its totality and its beauty, but ultimately incomprehensible and mysterious. And then as you began to delineate phylogenetic relationships, beginning to understand the meaning of taxonomy, even the poetics of the Latin were names themselves, which for Tim were never complicated. He, he recited them effortlessly as if they were cones. Suddenly, the entire dimension of that forest took form. Uh, Plants became cousins to each other. You could understand the relationship between uh, members of the Solanaceae and why that family was the family of choice of black sorcerers and witches throughout the world. Uh, (laughs) I I, I don't know if I should tell you this story, but it's just too great. You know, Timothy wasn't really one to get into sort of drug-experience discussions with strangers, but we were, in, we were on our way to Sibindoy, and you may know that Schultes had saved William Burroughs' life uh, when they discovered they were from the same class at Harvard, uh, in, when Burroughs went looking for the ultimate mind-altering high. Uh, and uh, we were on our way to Sibindoy years later, and we were in a vegetarian restaurant about 1973, and there was a cluster of people at the table, including one man who was wearing saffron robes, and he introduced himself as Premdas. But his accent betrayed the fact that he was uh, Australian, and and uh, he was talking about his various drug experiences and so on. And then he mentioned that he had. Um, he also mentioned that he didn't wear shoe- He didn't go anywhere. He had to wear shoes. And I looked under the table, and our dog Pogo was eating tofu and not liking it. Uh, and this man didn't have any shoes on. He had a ring on his toe. And as you described these drug experiences, I suddenly noticed when one of the things he was telling about, it was that he had inadvertently decided to try uh, Brugmansia, which is a tree datura, full of these interesting tropane alkaloids that bring on his... Um, um, like I said, the induced sensation of flight, psychotic delirium, the vision of hellfire, burning thirst, and of course that is the origin of The Witch and the Broomstick on Halloween, which is just an interesting thing to lay on the PTA this uh, October. <laughs> but this guy, Premdas, had just decided to take a few whacks of datura and promptly it ended up walking around the Barranquilla uh, market for three days naked. And one of the Colombian hippies who was with us turned to... Us and said, I know that market, I wouldn't even buy a mango there. And anyway, suddenly, as this conversation's going on, Tim looks at this guy, and suddenly his zeroes in, he says, Howard, Howard Ziegler. <laughs> <laughs> Bogota 65. And then suddenly the whole artifice shattered, and it turns out that Tim had turned Howard onto LSD, in 1965, long before he was primed us. But then we <laughs> realized to our horror he was also going to see Bindui. So Timothy simply said, Well, Howard, I think you'll need shoes there. And Howard said, Well, rather than deal with that hassle, he'd go back to the coast. But that was kind of the wonder of um, <laughs> the wonder of Timothy. You know, he had this ability um, uh, to lay open the world in that sense. And as I began to study botany, seriously, all these plants had stories, you know, whether it was um, the pollination and distribution mechanisms. I mean, when I would learn of these things, uh, they, they were all points of awe. I mean, something as, as, as remarkable as the uh, Victoria water lily. Do you know that big plant you'll find in botanical gardens with those enormous leaves? And it's got this flower the size of a, of a cauliflower, you know, enormous blossom. But its its pollination mechanism is quite extraordinary. You know, it grows in these uh, oxbow lakes and sloughs on the edges of the Amazon. A child could have a nap on one of its leaves. It's that buoyant. But the most fascinating thing is the blossom comes up from beneath the water at dusk and suddenly opens up its sepals, which are bright white. And the metabolic processes, which have been... Um, working away all afternoon said clouds of perfume over the height over the surface of the swamp and those same processes have been uh, heating up the carpal to exactly 11 degrees centigrade above whatever the ambient temperature is. The perfume, the scent, and the heat tra- attracts beetles that come in that get into the nectaries at the base of the carpal, but then as they're munching away unbeknownst to them, the, the plant closes and then it goes takes them on a little ride down beneath the swamp for 24 hours and then it comes back up by this point it opens up just the sepals and reveals these stunningly magenta petals which warn any other insect to stay away and then the beetles themselves uh, by that point they've munched away at all the nectaries and they've they've brought their pollen to the to the um, uh, to, the, to the flower, but it's at that point that the anthers mature, and as they leave in their desperate hunger, because they've been starved inside a prison, they carry the, the pollen from the anthers to an adjacent flower. And everywhere you look in botany, you find these extraordinary examples. I mean, I, I know that Paul Stamets would be offended for me to call a mushroom a plant, but he'd be delighted for me to tell this wonderful story of Palobolus. Have you ever heard of the dance group in New York called Palobolus? Do you know where they get their name? Oh, they're coming here. Well, you know where they get their name is from the Palobolus hat-thrower mushroom. And what this little creature does, it parasitizes flies and the fly lands as it's dying, always on a vertical surface, and the fruiting body sprouts out of it, and the t- tip of the fruiting body has a little light-sensitive lens, which like an anti-aircraft gun, moves around like that, responding to shadows in the, in the light, and as a fly shoots over, the shadow triggers the spore, which shoots up, hits it out of the air, and then it eventually parasitizes the fly, and the whole cycle is completed. I mean, you know, God must have been on something when he invented that. <laughs> and I, I think that um, I, I recall also very clearly having spent a year and a half uh, studying plants in the field and having especially not only inc- their, 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 their spatial and geographical uh, wonder uh, revealed to me, but also to understand their diachronic essence, you know, this extraordinary Uh, evolution of plants that Michael referred to, the whole alteration of generations whereby the entire history of plants has been the progressive reduction uh, uh, of the um, uh, gametophyte into more and more dependence on the spermatophyte. And you all know that story, I'm sure, from ferns, right? I mean, every fern, which is an ancient plant, if you look on the underside of a fern, of course, you see the the uh, source or, or which have the sporangia in it, the sporangia has the spores in it, and the spores that are dropped from there are haploid they germinate into a free-living gametophyte, out of which two structures emerge, the anthritia and the archegonia, and then there's a mitotic division at that point that produces two haploid sperm and an egg, in a sense. And then then when they come back together, the the full diploid uh, chromosome number is restored, and the spermatophyte grows out of the gametophyte. So exact in most ancient plants, you had two separate free-living uh, generations. But this generation of the gametophyte, which is often unicellular, uh, susceptible to uh, desiccation, is very, very um, susceptible to, to all kinds of forces of nature. And the entire evolution of plants has been to drag this thing up into increased dependency and protection of the spermatophyte. And the flower, the, the conifers, what you know as a conifer, swept over the, over the earth about 350 million years ago often displaces cycads, the seed ferns, and other uh, even older plants like the, 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 the uh, relatives of Lycopodium and, and the Calamites, the horsetails, which form the coal swamps. And the conifers had this down because they had reduced that gametophyte into a, a structure called a cone, which is quite protective. Suddenly the flowering plants come along and, and they have a tremendous evolutionary advantage over the conifers because the the, in the case of the conifers, the entire food supply of the imminent, impossible seed is made whether or not that seed is fertilized or not. And then of course, in the, the great evolutionary leap of the flowering plants is that fertilization and pollination occurred at the same moment. So that, that was a stunning evolutionary advantage. And in short order, as Michael suggested, the flowering plants put the conifers to the, to the run to the extent that today we probably have 250,000 species of flowering plants, but in the hotbed of evolution, and and only 700 species of conifers, most of those conifers have been totally excluded from the hotbed of evolution, the tropics, and they've been marginalized to extreme areas of the world, uh, where a handful of species, such as white and black spruce in the circumboreal forest, can can spread in, in vast numbers, but few individual species. And once you sort of start to see these dramas unfold, you suddenly realize why something like our own temperate rainforests are so important, as opposed to the tropical rainforest, because of course, the only place in the world where the conifers retain their former glory are in the temperate rainforests of the world, where because of unique circumstances of climate, either in the southern coast of Chile or from California north to Alaska, Uh, It's only because in these areas we have long, hot, dry summers and cold, wet winters, and because of that, the the deciduous plants, or the flowering plants, have never been able to get the kind of toehold, because at the time that the waters fall for, for growth, um, the, the, the plants have lost their leaves in the wintertime. And this has given the conifers a, a, an advantage, which has allowed them to cling on. So you begin to see plants in these kind of incredible dramas, and you see the, com- the, the consequences of eradicating the temperate uh, old growth forests, when in fact a place like the Amazon, Uh, remains the size of the continental United States, a vast expanse of forest, and yet it's these ancient forests of California and Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Alaska that are, in in some sense, far more imperiled. And really, the the question becomes, why are plants seen to be boring by so much of the society? I remember when I returned from South America and began to against all Tim's expectations, actually become a diligent student of plants in an academic sense. I remember I would be in the science library at night, moaning and groaning with revelation. And on the, literally on the night I discovered what the Krebs cycle meant, I actually got thrown out of the science library at Harvard for making so much noise. You know, all kinds of other students were complaining about having to memorize these metabolic pathways Because I was an anthropologist because I had studied so much Indian myth, these were just stories of myth that I I, I committed to memory effortlessly. I got straight A's on all my exams. I mean, I I knew everything about academic uh, metabolic pathways because they all were like songs the plants had sung to me. And I never could understand why it was, and this is an interesting, perhaps, subject for conversation between Michael and I and with you, is why why is the plant realm seen to be boring? Uh, why, I mean, I, I've met a lot of botanists that are boring, but I've never, met, <laughs> I've never met a single plant that is boring. And I don't think I... Uh, I was just uh, throwing those things out there. You know, I'm wondering to follow up on this idea you had that agriculture was a strategy of grasses to get rid of trees. I am very interested in the advent of agriculture, and the death of our nomadic traditions. Uh, I don't really even like domesticated plants. I don't like domesticated anything. In fact, uh, I-, I like to live in places where there's nothing domesticated. And uh, in a way, it made me think that grasses are the fascists of the, uh, <laughs> of the plant kingdom, if you think about it, uh, which is a note I'll just leave you on. <laughs> you can- <laughs>
3: So we'd be happy to take some questions, and there's a microphone up here. Are you proposing to pass it around?
1: Yeah, because uh, they're trying to record this. Oh, if you okay. have a question, just so raise your hand, and
3: raise I'll your bring hand the and microphone then, um, to you. Okay.
4: Um, this is a question for both of you. Um, you mentioned that uh, there aren't many cultures in the world that have not use some kind of psychotropic substance for consciousness. And um, I'm a student of plants and culture. And um, I wanted to put the question to both of you. Um, Do you know of any psychotropic plants that are used within um, the Tibetan and Chinese communities? Entheogenic plants.
1: Well, I actually would somewhat disagree with Michael that I, I think it's... Um, I know Andy wrote that in The Natural Mind. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, I mentioned yesterday, it's very important to remember that the use of these plants is rooted in culture. And of the known hallucinogenic plants and the, and the one hallucinogenic animal we know, alvarius uh, the vast majority are from the Americas and Siberia. Uh, there are psychoactive plants elsewhere in the world, Uh, But I think it's very important to remember the real message of Andrew's book, which was that the key thing is the desire to periodically change consciousness. That's what is a ubiquitous uh, intuition, instinct, um, uh, trait of the human species. Now that is something you can find everywhere. Uh, And that's what also allows us to sort of question uh, why there is this kind of severe restriction on the use of these sacred plants in our society. Uh, But the the bottom line is that um, that trait is found everywhere. Uh, The use of plants to satisfy that desire has a disproportionate concentration in the Americas. And I think that's because other peoples have found other ways to transform their spirits. Now there's a lot of suggestions of plants uh, that may or may not have been used in in the bone religion of Tibet. But certainly in my travels in Tibet, uh, I've never seen uh, common use of plants, with the exception of, of course, tobacco, which is spread so, so far and wide around the world. I, I mean, I think the in- interesting thing is not whether or not a plant was ever used, but is there an ongoing, consistent tradition of use of those plants? You know, and I would suggest that in, in the Buddhist tradition, the ideology of that religion, uh, did, did not, was not necessarily um, calling for that in the same way that say the shamanic religions of the Americas called for it.
3: I'd also just say that um, I, I'd, I'd widen it out. I'm not just talking, when I, I'm not talking about hallucinogens. I mean I'm talking about caffeine and, and nicotine and, and, and alcohol uh, and all the different, um, plant substances that change consciousness often in very mild ways. And sometimes are just simply useful tools for everyday life.
1: Um, yeah, if you add an alcohol and for balance. Then
3: then you've got it covered, yeah. And I think that's what that, I think that, that's what he, he meant. Um, microphone to the woman on the aisle there.
4: Michael, I'm not sure if I picked this up from your book. I've really forgotten. But Somewhere in the recent past, I read that it seems as if the female of our species has co-evolved with marijuana in that one of the receptors for marijuana in is the in uterus. our womb, is in yeah. the uterus, and the advantage to us as childbearing became uh, more and more painful as female primates evolved was to allow us to forget the pain of childbirth, so we do it again.
3: Yeah, you did did read that in my book. But I I don't think it worked quite like that. I mean, the receptors that we have that THC seems to lock onto and activate are there for other purposes. Um, We have our own internal cannabinoid network, neurotransmitter network. And it's one of the, you know, it's simply a coincidence I assume, that this plant out in the world producing this very unusual molecule happened to trip the same, uh, the same receptors. Um, but that's how evolution works. You know, it's, it's an accident that happens to have a wonderful utility. Or be adaptive in that way, but it is true that um, uh, that there are they have found cannabinoid receptors that are mostly in the brain, but they're also in the uterus. And one of the things I explore in the book is you know the common phenomenon of forgetfulness, which you were exemplifying, I think, with your question. Uh, (laughs) Is um, uh, you know it it is something marijuana does to people, but it's also something the the body's own cannabinoids do to people. And my question to this uh, uh, Raphael Meshulam, who's this uh, neuroscientist who's done a lot of this work, is, why would we have evolved a mechanism to help us forget that really seems maladaptive? And he sent me back this cryptic little email. And he said, well, don't be so sure it's maladaptive. Do you really want to remember all the faces you saw on the subway this morning? (laughs) And I was, wow, of course. So forgetting is is not a defect of the brain, but a procedure of the brain, and a very, very important one uh, for many, many reasons that I talk about in the book. It, 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 the cannabinoids may be involved in this editing facility we need to, to basically you know, edit 99% of the sense information coming in. And one of the things, obviously, would be very useful. I mean, people talk about the fact that pain is the hardest experience to summon from memory, uh, whether it's the pain of labor or, or other kinds of pain. And that's obviously very adaptive. Um, to be able to forget what pain really felt like. Uh, And that may be why we have these in the uterus. Um, Yeah. How much more time do I have?
0: Thank you. Obviously a very provocative talk. Um, So I'm going to shift from psychedelics, which (laughs) everyone's on that edge, right? Um, Michael, you talked about consciousness and plants. And I know there's so many different definitions of consciousness from the more Cartesian quest to uh, the quantum biological, perhaps. So The question I ask you is, from that perhaps fundamental or quantum level, is there really a separation between us, plants, minerals, and that perhaps there's this fundamental field and when we listen to a plant and have that relationship, then it's, wait, I read your one book and it seemed like that was part of what you were trying to define. So if you guys could talk about that, the relationship between plants and humans, especially you know, from that perspective.
3: Well, I don't think you need to give them consciousness to, to, to um, uh, you know, attribute enormous powers and... Is this on? And magic, and, and um, uh, you know, that's again, that goes back to what our standard of uh, as the acme of evolution is, is consciousness. Um, there are other things to get good at, and I, I just have no evidence that they've gotten particularly good at that. Um, there are. Uh, I was talking to someone at dinner last night who's speaking here, who says that there are experiments showing that plants that are prayed for heal better than ones that are not prayed for. So. You know, I, I have an open mind about it, but I was very careful in writing this book not to go further than the scientists, or, or when I did to be very clearly, uh, you know, as, as in the case of the oak and the squirrel, to be speculative, but I just get a little uncomfortable with that. I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, that's my mainstreamness coming out. <laughs> But genius, yes. I mean, I, and I think a lot of it is vocabulary, though. You know, these words, they're all metaphors. And, and um, they were designed to describe people. And um, we came up with them to describe ourselves so that if they don't fit plants that well, we shouldn't be so surprised. Maybe we just need another vocabulary. But are there underlying? I mean, yes, there are relationships.
1: Yeah. I want to take this. <laughs> I kind of go back to my Mozart question. I think it's kind of supreme hubris to presume that we matter to a plant. Um, uh, I, I um, You know, I, I'm very comfortable with metaphor. And I, I, I st- spend my life really looking at cultural metaphor. I mean, how how human beings and human societies adapt and how they see in, in the natural world uh, some kind of reflection of what they want to be. I mean, one of the things that's very important, especially sort of vis-a-vis you know, some of the things that I was saying this morning, uh, you know, these the, the sort of structures that society has, whether it's putting a priest to be in a, in, a, in a stone hut for 18 years or whether it's any number of other cultural practices, it's not that they always do it and always do it right. I mean, it's part of it is that this, these are these are these when you and this is one of the pitfalls of anthropology. You know, anthropology goes down and records from a shaman uh, a series of tales. Well, it's sort of like going to get a total view of American society by, to, by going to the rabbi or the or the or the priest. I mean, the priest is going to give you the image of the ideal. and. Uh, uh, and that will be often a far, far cry from how people actually live out their lives. But on the other hand, the measure of a people is not just how they live their lives, but the quality of their metaphors and the quality of their aspirations. So I tend to see the natural world as a place where different cultures, uh, in their desperate need to orient themselves, sort of lay themselves upon that realm. Uh, you know, every, every place I've ever gone, human societies have created structures to explain who they are, to deal with the uh, terrible lo- loneliness and isolation that a conscious being has in the world. And that's a lot. to a great extent, those become the, the parameters of, of culture. I mean, in, the, in, in, in South America, for example, um, you have all these incredible cultures of the Central Shea who are trying to deal with the dichotomy of existence, raw and the cooked, light and darkness, and they do it in some rather extraordinary ways, one of which is that they um, uh, y- you know, they-, they-, they will divide their entire male population and female population into age cohorts that cross-cut the three patrilineages. And, and anyone who say uh, zero to five becomes age cohort one, uh, anyone who's in five to ten and so on up to the age of 40 and then you recycle but the long story short is that each year they have this incredible ceremonial race where the two moieties the two halves one three five and seven combined as a team against two four six and eight and they have this amazing race over uh, over over the savannas of central Brazil and when People first observed this they were completely confused because no one really they had to carry this huge log and nobody really cared on either side how heavy who had the heaviest log and it was actually common for one side to sort of stop and let the other people wait, catch up and when one anthropologist a colleague of mine first witnessed it in the 1950s he ran the race and he was absolutely delighted when his side came out far ahead and then everybody was crestfallen and then the other side won another time everybody was downcast, and then one time they both arrived at the same time, and the whole village erupted in celebration. In fact, the whole idea was to have a race whereby you took the dichotomy of existence, made manifest by the, um, by the different lineages, and the oppositions, and the marriage rules, and all kinds of things, but you broke the whole society into half, and then everybody gave all in a frenetic, effort to tie because that was a gesture that brought everybody together and resolved the dichotomy and harmony now does does that mean that the palm flora of that savannah gave a shit about that race i don't think so Uh, i think that what you had there was a a human population uh, playing out a drama and a drama that helped them thrive and that's what all mythology is you know mythology is all about trying to explain I mean that's what religion is it's about trying to explain this inner exoral separation between life as we know it and what lies beyond so what I find interesting about the dance of ethnography is is is, uh, is going around the world and sort of parachuting into these areas and um, finding on the one hand the right conduit to culture the right way to break down any inherent suspicions that there might be, but on the other hand, almost like asking a woman to dance for the first time, trying to find the kind of rhythms where you begin to get a sense of what it is that makes those people tick and and what propels them forward. And when you do that, that's when you begin to understand notions like a so-called conservation ethic, you know. Uh, And I was mentioning earlier the, the destruction of the temperate rainforest. Well, I grew up in British Columbia believing that those forests existed to be cut. That's what I was taught. But now I have friends who are Quagules, who were raised to believe that they were the place they would have to go during the Hametz initiation, where they would see hukuk in the crooked beak of heaven and the cannibal spirits that dwell at the north end of the world. And, and, and that, that reality, which was just a poetic idea, was just a metaphor, made that kid profoundly different than I was, because he had a different view of that forest. The forest hadn't changed. And I would still say that the forest didn't care about them or me would be my guess I mean
3: yeah I agree the only thing I'd add to that though that you may take heart in is that you know plants do create metaphors themselves in their own terms I mean you think about flowers if a metaphor is this stands for that flowers have gotten very good at that there are flowers that impersonate animals to be pollinated Uh, that smell like rotten meat, um, so that the whole idea of meaning at a very basic level, or what to us seems like a very basic level, is to be found in the plant world. Um, and flowers are a very important place to look, because that whole, um, uh, you know, invention of the angiosperm, that all those strategies get remarkably close to uh, concepts of meaning that, that we think are, are limited to, to humans. Um, Where's the microphone guy? We haven't haven't been going to the back because it seemed like a long walk, but maybe we should. Uh,
2: This question is for Wade Davis. I'm going to detour a bit into uh, Arcana, but uh, I was wondering if you could relate some of the discussion to the durian fruit
1: of Sarawak. Well, that's like a plant that has a great sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> do you know durian fruits? Yeah. Durian is a, a tree of Southeast Asia, which is probably where the flowering plants evolved. Uh, the magnolias were part of something called the renalian Complex, and, and uh, some of the oldest angiosperms would be found there. The durian, I don't know that much about it, except that it's, uh, it, it smells absolutely dreadful, but it's absolutely delicious to eat. Which is one of why well, I say it's got a great sense of humor. Uh, you know, you can, you, you. I mean, it absolutely smells like rancid butter or butyric acid. You know, ginkgo kind of. I mean, you can't even imagine you're going to put this into your mouth, and it plays tricks with your, uh, with your taste buds because so much of our taste is triggered, of course, by olfactory, uh, um, you know, uh, leads. So durian. Have you ever eaten durian pie? It's just. Incredible experience because it goes against all of your instincts for eating something, but that's about the limit of my knowledge about durian fruit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I can't help you more than.
3: Another question. While you're back there, why don't you pick someone from?
4: Um, Although I I know you're cautious to attribute consciousness to plants in this discussion, you use the term strategy and talk about how they make metaphors and that sort of thing. And um, I agree that that the grass family is a very aggressive family. I mean, it takes care of itself well and it's integrated with human needs and has fed us all and uh, through, our, through our toying with it over so long and actually swelled the human population to be so huge that we're now a serious problem for the habitat. So that's kind of my question is, is do you see, either one of you addressing this, do you see um, the grass or any species really as being sort of selfishly self-interested in propagation or? having heard Lynn Margulis yesterday talk about Gaia and all of that kind of fluctuation, you know, how cooperative are we? How do we work together so that if they're working in their own behalf and, it's, and we're swelling our numbers <clears throat> and we're kind of pulling the rug out from under ourselves, you know, and, and it looks like it's going down in flames sometimes because of this very cycle? Speculate, please. Thank you.
3: Uh, okay. I'll speculate briefly. Well, like, like most questions, most of the interesting questions in life, I think the answer is both. I mean, I think that there's there, the, the story of domestication is a, a wonderful story. I like domesticated plants more than Wade because I think it shows, it's very hopeful, and the way gardens are very hopeful, and that they show um, a mode and a and a um, a history of of our interests and other species interests being reconciled in a certain way, coming together, being reciprocal. Um, that you know, when you domesticate well, um, or you make a garden well. It is not wilderness, it is not as it is in the wild, but it is working for a lot of species. And I think we need positive models like that. And that is one of the reasons that all my environmentalism flows out of the garden rather than the wilderness, which is really where Americans traditionally have gone for their ideas about nature. on the other hand, plants, just like us, and, and all sorts of species, expand to the limit of their range, and, and, and that process is stopped by the by the cruelest, most disastrous uh, um, uh, mechanisms. I mean, we can think of. I mean, you, you can look at monocultures. You know, that's the ultimate success of a of, of a species. You could argue, um, and it's often a disaster um, because when a monoculture gets so big, we'll talk about this at a genetic engineering panel tomorrow. Um, but uh, take the the lumper the potato that was that that conquered Ireland I mean it was one one strain of potato that was such a great success story um, in the narrow sense in that it got itself planted all over Europe uh, to the exclusion of virtually every other potato Um, but then in 1845 a a, a blight showed up that wiped it out Um, so that uh, you know the success of some of these domesticated species plays against biodiversity, which is nature's you know, real insurance policy. Um, so that sometimes, like us, they go too far uh, and, and, and disaster ensues.
2: Michael, are you certain that evolution is
3: accidental? I'm not certain about anything <laughs> no uh, I, maybe we should bring it up forward yeah. <laughs> we need more of those right
2: <laughs> you Michael and, and Wade you both were talking about uh, this moment of, of the arrival of agriculture their coevolution with agriculture Michael you were mostly talking about this uh, yet Maybe Wade, you know more about this. Uh, haven't many peoples f- for a lot longer time before the emerged, the primacy of agriculture and the development of civilizations, been involved with selective harvesting, yeah. rotational systems in this this part of the world right here? Miwok and Pomo sy- uh, systematically harvesting and spreading um, to come back a year or two later to harvest again. So, talk about the. Yeah, well, in, deep I roots think in the wild
3: areas you go, you, there are still the marks of.
1: of- our presence, right? What we chose oh, and what we spread. Oh, I mean, there's yeah. no place where humans have gone that they haven't made some kind of uh, impact. I mean, you know, the Kalahari Bushmen derived 90 percent of their water from tubers that they find underground. Uh, uh, wherever, Clearly the hunting and gathering tradition probably colored most of our history. When we talk of Neolithic shaman or Neolithic individuals using medicinal plants, these are obviously plants gathered from the wild. and yeah, it's, it's a true, I mean, yeah, yeah I guess you, in a way you would say that. I mean, I think that the rise of agriculture, once, it, once we got it down, uh, it, it certainly took on a, a, a rapidity and a series of social transformations that I find just fascinating. I mean, the, the one part of domestication that I, I was being a little flippant in, in knocking domesticated plants, but I, the one part of domestication I find so fascinating is how quickly it happened. You know, I mean, all over the world, suddenly, at about the same time, um, this idea, which now seems so obvious to us, which is to encourage the growth of a seed and select for certain properties of the progeny of that seed, it seems like that wouldn't be that big an intellectual leap, really, especially to a hunting and gathering society that, by definition, were so perspicacious, you know, and had such a kind of acuity. It's, It's sort of interesting how it took so long, and then when it happened, it sort of happen so quickly and the consequences are just extraordinary. I mean I guess as an anthropologist I'm more concerned about the consequences of domestication and uh, you know it clearly set into motion a lot of the, the, the processes uh, that, that, are, that are afflicting us today and of course some of the things that naturally we benefit so much from but I find it just so interesting to be with nomads. My, 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 I, I prefer to be with nomadic pre-agricultural people if I have a chance. And we're going to let him go back to his nomads, because we have, to, uh,
3: we have to wrap up. I'm getting a signal. Thank you all. You've been a great audience.
1: I think we are probably the two most conservative people here.